That's where the courage is really needed, is the, the courage to see what's there. Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It, it, we need to see that. And when we see it, and then accepting it, and then being able to, what are we going to do towards it? Are we going to react to it? There's no space between stimulus and response, and that's a knee-jerk reaction, and usually negative. Or are we going to create space between stimulus and response and respond to it and say, okay, how do I respond to this? Do I respond to this in a way where, where I'm pushing it away or or just being upset about it? Or am I looking at it in a way where I can start to ask questions like with a growth mindset, what is this? Mm-hmm. What's what's the most compassionate thing to do? How do I relate to this situation in alignment with my my values and my aim, my goal? Welcome to The Courageous Life, a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks, overcoming fears, and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Joshua Steinfeld. And it's my mission to explore insights, practical strategies, and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. What are the qualities of mind and heart, or put another way, the mindsets and behaviors that separate the world's very best performers? From the rest of the pack. In the sport of basketball, all-time greats like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, what was it that was different about them? In this conversation with today's guest, George Mumford, we get into that and much, much more. George and I also explore why Phil Jackson recruited him and what he thought teaching meditation would do to enhance his team's performance, the Bulls and the Lakers. We explore why there's a continued interest in mindfulness and meditation among elite performers inside and outside of professional sports. We also get into more of George's journey, address the importance of being kinder or a better friend to oneself, and go through a really practical framework that George calls the four A's which stand for awareness, acceptance, compassionate action, and assessment. This framework being a powerful tool that can lead to greater performance and well-being in one's life. It was a huge honor to have George on the show today. And whether you've been a listener for quite some time or you're new to the show, I imagine that you'll find his many practical teachings, insights, and pieces of wisdom he shares to be valuable. For those who are not familiar with George Mumford, I'd like to give a little bit more background before we dive in. George was an aspiring basketball player at the University of Massachusetts, where he roomed with Dr. J, or Julius Irving. Injuries forced Mumford out of the game he loved. The medications that relieved the pain of his injuries also numbed him to the emptiness he felt without the game, and eventually led him to heroin. After years of making meditation on and off the cushion the center of his life and getting clean, Mumford enrolled in Dr. John Kabat-Zinn's Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, which many of you may be very familiar with. And he collaborated with John Kabat-Zinn to create the Inner City Stress Reduction Clinic in the early 1990s. When Michael Jordan left the Chicago Bulls to play baseball in 93, the team was in crisis. Phil Jackson 
Our coach at the time and a longtime mindfulness practitioner contacted Dr. Kabat-Zinn to find someone who could teach mindfulness techniques to the team, someone who would have credibility and could speak the language of his players. Kabat-Zinn led Jackson to Mumford, and the rest is history. Mumford has worked with Jackson and many of the teams he coached to become NBA champions. His roster of champion clients has since blossomed way beyond basketball to include corporate executives, Olympians, and athletes in many different sports. If you're interested in learning more about George Mumford, please check out georgemumford.com, or you can always pick up a copy of his best-selling book, The Mindful Athlete, wherever books are sold. George and I cover a lot in this conversation, and as always, I've included show notes with links to references and resources we might discuss, which can be found at joshuasteinfeld.com forward slash podcast. All right, I think that's about enough of an intro from me. Without any further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you this conversation with George Mumford. All right. Well, George, welcome to the show. Good. Is, is everything good? Everything All is right. great. It's great All to right. have you here on the show. Really excited. All right. I thought I'd open, George, as I always do, by asking, uh, since this is the courageous life, if there's some sort of challenge or adversity that you faced, and it could be anywhere in your life, early, when you started your career, whatever it might be, that you feel really put you on your path or kind of on your trajectory around what you're doing professionally today. So that's kind of the general question that I wanted to actually, since you've talked quite openly in your book and other interviews and places about going through addiction and the road mm -hmm. to recovery and finding mindfulness, I wanted to, to actually frame this question up just slightly differently, if you'd be open to it and, and read yeah. a passage from your book. This comes from yeah. the, uh, the chapter on faith. And what you write here is, and I think this can be a nice intro into your story, and maybe you can give us some context and things like that. You say... When I was on my knees in the bathroom at work in the first days of my sobriety decades ago, praying to something for help, I was essentially reaching out to that force that is beyond our comprehension. I took a leap of faith, hoping that what I'll call the universe would take care of me. I let my guard down and got out of my own way. And here's what changed everything. Everything. Yeah. Yep. So could you share a little bit about your story and, and kind of uh, some of the challenges that you're facing and, and the journey through recovery, maybe as a starting point? Everything begins, especially around my recovery. The first step is is surrender. And I don't mean like a surrender where I just let somebody else take over for me. It's really more of a surrender to my managing my life or, or me being in charge and realizing my best thinking couldn't get me couldn't keep me sober. So it was this reality of opening to a, a greater awareness or to something that would, had more power than I had or I have. And so it was just a letting go and letting God, if you will, or just realizing it doesn't matter what I call it. All I know is it's not me. And that my basic dilemma was a lack of power, a lack of discipline or commitment to say no to the things that were not helpful to me. So the courage had to do with, with not knowing what was going to happen and giving up my machismo, my idea that, that I or myself could do it. And that's just the beginning because then the courage is, how do you sustain that from moment to moment? How do you sustain that from day to day? And as you might imagine, 
our emotions are roller coasters. And when uh, it's like a roller being on a roller coaster. And when I think about my recovery, especially the early days, it was up and down in, in the sense that some days were easier than others. But to me, once I surrendered, once I, I had the experience of just doing it differently and thing about courage of being vulnerable is that you get stronger and it helps you to understand that that's going to be a lifelong a skill, a lifelong verb. You will being courageous. It's going to happen because just the way life is, as we continue to move and evolve, things are changing all the time. We're changing. Everything's changing. And one side of the coin is freedom or potential. The other side of the coin is uncertainty. And so you have to have this ability to move, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And so that means anytime we try to change a habit pattern or a practice we have, whether it's brushing our teeth or, or what, what we do, you know, in terms of how we relate to the rest of our lives, whether it's, you know, we like to have a rich, especially if you, if you do athletics and, you know, you have a process, or even if you just think about things a certain way and you decide you're going to shift how you think about things, especially about ourselves, it's going to mobilize anxieties. It's just part of it. It's just going to happen. And so we need the courage to say yes to it, especially when it's uncomfortable, especially when fear rises, because fear you know, it has a way, whether it's fear or anxiety, it has a way of showing up. And the idea is to be aware because not all fears are bad. Some fears are like being afraid of getting hit by a car or touching a hot stove. There's some fears that are rational. We're really talking about irrational fear. So we need the courage to, to do something or to step out and to do something that, that you haven't done before or that you haven't gone someplace where you're not really that population's cup of tea. <laughs> If you think about it, I mean, especially if you're if you're a Red Sox fan and you're in New York and you're hanging out with Yankee, <laughs> Yankee fans, uh, it might be a little bit uncomfortable. And you you do it anyway because you know maybe your friend or your significant others from New York or my my roommates for college from college were from New York, so they were Nick fans. Not so much we didn't talk about the Yankees so much, but they were definitely a Nick fans, and so. That's a mild thing, but just like going to therapy for the first time or going to a meditation center for the first time, especially being a person of color and going to a meditation center is probably or a lot of places, not not just a meditation center, but my whole life from high junior high school on, I was a minority mm-hmm. and having to go and, and be there and being the only one. And so having the courage to, to go to the meditation center, even though people didn't look like me. Thanks for sharing that, George. There's a lot of pieces I could pull out there that we could explore. Mm-hmm. There's a theme on the show that's really become um, just a big question that I've been exploring with a lot of guests. And I'd love for this to kind of be our overarching theme for today and kind of dive into different aspects of your work and, and experience around this theme. There was a guest on a past show named Mark Nepo. And you might know Mark, I don't know. He's a, a spiritual teacher and a poet, one of the uh, recognizes one of the greatest poets of our time. Mm. And he said during our conversation that from his view, one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves in this lifetime is how do I keep my heart open when it begins to close? And that has evolved into not just opening the physical heart, but really as you described this vulnerability or in your writing there. When you talked about surrender, you mentioned the words, letting my guard down. 
Um, and you even mentioned letting go of kind of machismo and being perhaps more open to learning, to growth, being more vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? So what I'm curious about under that kind of framing is as you're going through this journey, you just described a few pieces of it, kind of some of the ups and downs. Was there at all in a sort of opening of your heart toward yourself in a way? So thinking about this almost like as coaching yourself through this process mm-hmm. from a friendlier place, perhaps a more encouraging place, as opposed to being more critical or harsh with oneself. Is there any relationship between some of the success that you've had on the road to recovery and in your work and this sort of friendly, open hearted approach toward the self? Is that at all true for you? I'm just curious about that. Well, yes. So it's interesting because I feel for myself, I've always had an open heart when it came to other people, Mm -hmm. but I didn't necessarily have an open heart for myself. And so being able to be open hearted for myself, it was a circuitous route, for instance. So by me opening my heart to you allowed me to open my heart to myself. So I, I talk about forgetting yourself to find yourself. Or forgetting myself to find myself. So it doesn't necessarily have to always start with us. And I would say for me, it was more challenging to be kind to myself initially. That's something that, that grew over time. But it was easier for me to, to, to see it as, to see what I was doing as being of service, helping others, uh, helping someone else. And by helping someone else, I'm also helping myself. But the courage is, if you really think about it, each moment is unfolding and unknown, even now. And so to have courage to be open to that and say yes to it, or to notice that, yeah, the heart closes down. And I, I could give you an example. I was, when I was working my last job, working in corporate America, and this one particular person who was the manager, my supervisor's boss, or both our bosses. And I went in to have a conversation with her and I folded my arms. And yeah. she said to me, uh, you know, and she, she knew, she knew that I was defensive and she said, why are you folding your arms? And then I said, yeah, yeah, that's curious. Why am I doing that? Then I let my arms go and we had the conversation. I didn't know exactly why I closed my, I folded my arms because there was a part of me that knew that, that it wasn't, it wasn't going to be pretty or there's going to be a need for me to protect myself. And we have this ability inside. And sometimes, so when we shut down, it's, it's protective act mm-hmm. and we have to look at it. And so for me, I shut down and I opened up and then I knew that I shut down for a reason. And so it's not so much, it's not so simplistic as open and close. Sometimes Mm -hmm. your heart closes because it's it's self-protection. And I would say uh, self-protection or fear might even be, might even be interpreted as an act of Mm self-care. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, what yeah. you're describing reminds me of the importance of pairing courage with wisdom or discernment. Yes. Amen. I'm yeah, curious. Pretty, pretty important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about along this journey too, as we kind of explore a little bit more of your story and your journey, where in the path did you encounter mindfulness? And could you share a little bit about kind of like your first early experiences and perhaps how that's been? Maybe there's a couple of highlights of how that's been supportive for you in, in your own journey. 
right, of transformation and, and growth? I found mindfulness, well, actually, it was termed, I got introduced through stress management. I had chronic pain when I got clean, when I stopped mm-hmm. taking drugs and alcohol. And so I was in the HMO very early on, and I got referred into this program called Stress Management. It was being taught by Joan Borisenko, who at that time was only one of three, what they call, well, the title was psychoneuroimmunologist. So it's, you know, another way of saying the immune system, endocrine system, just understand, trying to understand the mind-body connection and how, how they interacted. So that's when I came, I became aware of mindfulness. And that's when I got, I learned how to, to meditate and how to change my lifestyle and accept total responsibility for my uh, well-being rather than going to a doctor or a healthcare provider and having them tell me everything to do, that I was a partner in that. And it actually, it was my job to, to say yes or no, that I was responsible. So that was huge. So the mindfulness piece was definitely, that was introduced. And mindfulness is really helpful, but mindfulness by itself is not enough. So you definitely need, need wisdom. I talk about this in my book. You know, when you say be mindful, what are you being mindful of and why? And do you adapt? Do you just make a choice and just let it be or are you adapting in real time? So you have to understand that mindfulness is, is really helpful. Or if you just think about it, that we have this ability, this ability, which I didn't know. And the mindfulness that helped me was the mindfulness that the mind and body are connected and not separate. And that I could control my, my involuntary aspects of my nervous system and my being indirectly. I mean, not directly, but indirectly. So the system, you know, whether it's the heart, heartbeat or respiratory rate and other things that indirectly I can, I could control those. I had, I had some responsibility. So I guess what I'm trying to say with this is, is the practice of awareness. Let's just use the word awareness being aware of things and being aware of things in a way where I could learn from them. So I'd say learning and the self-regulation, realizing that that it's not what happens to me is whether I react or respond to it. And then understanding that, that I had to just examine my life, how I was living, my lifestyle, and my, how I, my relationship to myself, my thoughts to others, and that the mindfulness on that, in that context of being able to, to have the awareness and a certain type of awareness, uh, uncritical or unjudgmental aspect of being aware of something like mirror mind. So you're seeing things, but you're not judging it and you're not blaming. You're just getting the raw data, how important that is just to be able as a human being to step back and observe our experience, but not just observing it, but observing it uncritically with the intention of seeking to understand. You know what I think has been really helpful uh, for me from your work, which, and this really has stood out to me, and I've actually been practicing with this for the past couple of months, is the four A's. Yes. And I think you're kind of alluding to this in, in some form, but I think, you know, mm-hmm. if we dig into this a little bit and someone says, okay, I kind of dig what George is talking about here. This is making sense, but how do I, how do I really put this into practice yes. in a practical way? Could you walk us through this framework yes. of the four A's? Yes. So, so awareness this idea of awareness, and it's, you can call it mindfulness, you can call it, it's a particular kind of awareness. awareness. It's a type of awareness where we're able to expand the perceptual process. What I mean by that is we get our information through the senses, 
through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the body, and the mind, or thinking. And when we take in a sense object, the idea is to allow that sense object, whatever it is, let's just say it's a sound, to allow ourselves to hear the sound. So there's a very short period of time where we just hear the raw data of the sound before we, we project self-interest, abstract thinking, associative thinking, embellishing it because we're relating to it based on what happened in the past or what, our, what we heard about it through some lens. There's some lens and there's some embellishment going on. And what we want to do is be able to see things in its rawness and the, just the raw data. And so instead of going in and, and pulling it towards us, pushing it away from us or interpreting it, we want to give it a little bit more time to breathe so it speaks to us in its own language and we can see it in the here and now, not based on what we know or based on and also realizing that that our current mindset that we're observing the object in has an impact on whether we see it or not, whether we embellish it or not. So if we perceive it, so there's this idea of something, there's a sense object, but in order to really see it, we're talking about hearing. So there's got to be a sound and the ears got to be working and the ears and the sound and consciousness have to have to connect. That's what they call contact. And once we have contact, it's either going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then from that, there's the labeling of what it is. And then from labeling, then there's, there's a thought process or formation, thought formations. And so you have those five things that are that are engaged. And of course, you have consciousness with, with the object. And so the contact, then you have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And why is that important? That's important because... The nervous system is programmed to move towards what's pleasant, away from what's unpleasant. And if there's no interest, like, I mean, indifference, not necessarily neutrality, like poise or equanimity, that's different. But I'm talking about indifference where we're, we're just not, we don't care. We're just kind of spacing out. When we, and that's when we space out. When it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, it's just, so we space out. And it's indifference and it's low energy, that sort of thing. So we realize, so if something is pleasant, we're going to move towards it, but we're not going to just move towards it. We're going to be thinking about the benefit, what it benefit, how it benefits us and all of the, the other great things that are going to happen. This stuff is happening. So you're actually creating a story about the thing instead of the thing telling you, you're telling you're telling yourself what the thing is instead of the thing or the object telling us. So the sound. And so that sound, if it's if it's unpleasant, you know, we don't we move away from it. If it's pleasant, we want more of it. And it's neither, we just space out. And so that's important because not only do we have the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, but then we have the labeling or the perception of what it is. And then, oh, it's it's music. And then, oh, music. And oh yeah, I love music. And now you got a whole, <laughs> whole story uh, about it. proliferation of thoughts about it. Yeah. This is all in the time of just looking at the thing. And this is <laughs> happening so fast that we don't even notice that gap, that space between what we're seeing, what we're hearing, and how we're relating to it. <laughs> and so any practice that allows us to just see things like a mirror mind, it just reflects what's in front of us to the degree that we can see clearly without the embellishment, without the the fog, as um, Ruiz talks about in, in the four um, agreements, it's, well, the dream, it's smoke, you know, it's, it's foggy, it's not clear. And we need to get rid of everything so we can see clearly, but there's awareness of it. And so once we have the awareness, then the second A is the acceptance of it. And that's where the challenge is. Because if it's, un, if it's pleasant, it's easier to accept it. 
But if it's unpleasant, it's not. But accepting it. And then once we accept it, and that's a challenge because that's a process. It's not something we do. Some things we can do it, but other things that we're that are really emotionally charged, it's challenging. But the idea is to see the awareness, the acceptance of it, and then the compassionate action or the third A. And the compassionate action, then the action comes out of because the accepting of it is not just accepting it, but understanding what it is. And then the compassionate action is really not only just to act, but to understand what is this, what's the best way to manage it or deal with it or relate to it. And of course, after that, then there's the fourth A, which is assessment, which is understanding that we have this this feedback loop that when we assess it, we can assess what worked, what didn't work. Because a lot of times when we get to things, we're going to make mistakes and we're not going to get it right or we're going to see something that we didn't see the last time. And then we have to reflect on it because true understanding comes from reflecting on experience. So we're really reflecting what worked, what didn't work and how do you get what didn't work to work and whatever else comes up. So those four A's are applicable to everything. Awareness, acceptance, which is the challenging part and the compassionate action. So the compassionate action is action that leads to healing wholeness, not action that we're reacting to things and we yell or, or want, you know, we get angry or we do something and then it generates a whole other experience where it leads to suffering. So we want to be able to understand. So you have to have the courage. That's where the courage is really needed is the, the courage to see what's there. Know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It, it, we need to see that. And when we see it, then accepting it and then being able to, what are we going to do towards it? Are we going to react to it? There's no space between stimulus and response. And that's a knee-jerk reaction and usually negative. Or are we going to create space between stimulus and response and respond to it and say, okay, how do I respond to this? Do I respond to this in a way where, where I'm pushing it away or or just being upset about it? Or am I looking at it in a way where I can start to ask questions like with a growth mindset, what is this? What's what's the most compassionate thing to do? How do I relate to this situation in alignment with my my values and my aim, my goal, or my ideal? So there's a lot that can happen there. So it requires that we reflect on experience before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. That there's a need there. Okay, so last time I, I talked to so and so, and he said something, I got I got triggered. So this time I'm going to assume if he says something, can I just listen to it? not react to it and be able to respond to it in a way where it's in alignment with who I say I am and what I say I want to do and who I want to be. George, I love it. And and for me, and and correct anything that's wrong here, but one of the pieces in that fourth A that I think stands out to me as particularly important, like in my own practice, my understanding of this is that assessment seems to sort of take morality out of the equation in some ways. Morality in this context, I'm thinking about as a label of like, this is good or bad. It's more like, is this moving me toward where I want to be? Or is this moving me further away? So it's kind of looking at the data and is this moving me more along whatever, perfecting my shot if I'm in basketball or, right. you know, whatever it is, like what are the actual results that I'm getting? And then I can sort of course correct and keep getting better, yes. keep making progress. Is that the right sort of understanding yeah, of that? To the degree that we can make the assessment without judging and being critical. Right. 
that's really important and that's impossible for some of us to do it initially if we don't <laughs> if we don't understand that we're doing it if we don't see that we're doing it yeah so it's it's really about workability or or what works it's really yeah. like like performances is being able to do what you say you're going to do so you say you're going to make a free throw and you miss it then you have to assess okay i missed it what's the lesson what do i have to change so that i make the next one then also part of that, which we don't really talk about too much because I believe our, our culture is predicated on pathology. So we're really good at what's wrong. We don't really celebrate what's right. And so when you make a three throw or you execute and you do exactly what you plan to do and you feel good about it, you have to understand how did you do it? Right, exactly. How did you do that? And when you understand how you did it, you can be more consistent with doing it. And then it becomes a habit, but you have to understand that. So it's the assessment is either way. It doesn't matter if you, if you achieve your goal or not, what matters at the assessment or the, what we call post-performance, you want to understand what happened. So if it's positive, you can replicate it and you can sustain it and perfect it versus if it's something that you didn't get what you want, then it's a matter of what's the lesson, what do you need to change so that you get the result you want. I love that, George. Thank you for for walking through that. And and that's one of the things I really appreciate about your teachings is you take some concepts that sometimes could seem really abstract and you sort of create this training ground for how we kind of develop these qualities, these skills Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. our lives. So, So thank you for that. I'd love to kind of shift into the next kind of big piece of the conversation. We're talking a little bit about basketball there, and I think that's kind of where we're going to transition into. Maybe we'll use this as a segue. So we were talking about your own journey and sort of some ideas about, I'm going to use the word coaching here, how you kind of coached yourself a little bit through that process. You shared a couple of, of kind of highlights. Now I'd like to talk about your work in coaching others and coaching some yes. of the world's best at yes. what they do. And maybe we could start with, I actually grew up, my dad's a huge Lakers fan. I grew up from <clears> the time I can remember watching Lakers games, uh, watching Phil Jackson lead the Lakers to championships with Kobe and Shaq. I know you work closely with Phil and, and others. When you first started working with Phil and with Michael and Kobe and uh, and were around these players who are the best in the world and not just the just the best in the world, but it's like they're in the NBA, which are the best players in the world. And then they were right. sort of at the upper echelon of the NBA, like at the very top. So when you walked in and you first kind of got to know Michael, got to know Kobe, got to know the team, what I'm really curious about is what you observed about maybe their way of being or different qualities that they had that you noticed that sort of set them apart? Like, was there anything that still stands out in your mind as like, they really brought a certain mindset to the table or they just had a way of being, or could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. The first thing it's interesting because I work with a lot of people and I would say, when you talk about Michael, MJ or Kobe, I would say those were probably two of my best students in a sense of coachability and a willingness mm-hmm. and a desire to succeed. Mm-hmm. I would say that's the, the main thing. And that desire to succeed includes understanding how, how I can get better today I'm pursuit, in the pursuit of excellence. It's, it's such, it's to the degree that, yeah, their, their ability to tolerate discomfort because you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable but you have to like i said you got to be coachable and you got to know yourself so the thing is with with michael and 
in Kobe is that that um, desire to succeed was extremely strong. Killer instinct, in other words, whatever they had to do, they would do it. Not in the sense of being destructive and, and hurting people, but in the sense of how they related to themselves and what they required from themselves and just knowing themselves and knowing when they could push and when they needed to back off. So it's it's really the same thing that I noticed. Uh, of course, it's it's a little bit different. It displays differently, but I had the privilege of rooming with Dr. J in college. So I saw, you know, I lived with an elite athlete and I saw him play. For, the, for those that don't know, this is Julius Irving, one of the best basketball players of all time. Yeah, and I saw his his development you know, as a, you know, I've seen him, I remember when he was a sophomore, but room when he was a junior and, and seeing him going from college to pro, you know, the semi-pro to pro and understanding that being there and seeing what he did and the kind of work ethic he had, but also the joy he had for the game. So I think they share, I think elite performers share this idea of loving what they do. It's almost like a, an oasis for them. It's a place where they can rested and it's like yeah it's just a place where they feel comfortable being but it's really understanding who they are and being willing to, to be a learner i would say phil talks about that a lot especially when we were working with a certain team it's like how to get them to be learners i won't mention what the team was but not being a learner not being willing to get out of the box not being willing to uh, listen and 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 be vulnerable is really, really important. I'd say humble and hungry people talk about, but there's something about being willing to learn and knowing that you can learn from everybody, everything that is really, it's really important. So people want to hear like they were really more athletic. This is all in the mental realm. Yogi Berra said 90% of baseball is mental. The other half is physical. I believe that. So if you really look at these cats, these cats had an IQ, but you don't recognize the IQ, the intelligence quotient of understanding basketball, understanding themselves, understanding how to make the teammates better, understanding how to to have a strategy to attack the opposition or to, you know, or to respond to the opposition trying to take certain actions away from you. You have encounter moves. And I'll talk about it a little bit. In 1998, of course, people have seen the last dance, and we we were playing. We were going into the Western, uh, the Eastern Conference Finals against Indiana Pacers, and Michael and and Scotty and Ron Harper. They had what they call a breakfast club, so they used to meet and practice before practice. And so, in one of their skull sessions, they decided that Scotty Pippen should guard Mark Jackson. And so they approached Phil and, and communicate their analysis and, and what they proposed, what they wanted to do. And Phil is, is one of these coaches. He wants his players to be more active in the, in the, you know, in the leadership role. And he said, OK. And Mark Jackson had like five turnovers in the first quarter. That's a lot for a yeah. game oh, in yeah. the first quarter. But that's the kind of thing. So people don't understand. It's not just going out there, rolling out the basketball and playing. These guys, they think about the game and they think about how they're going to approach or how they're going to be able to express themselves in, in, in the context of the of the action, but also the, the team we're playing. So we'll fast forward years later and Kobe playing against the Boston Celtics. And people don't know this, but what he did was he hired a video person to break down 
Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and I forget who the other person was, Rondo maybe, showed that Kobe, when he went to play them, he he had all their tendencies. He, kn- he knew what they liked to do in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And he hired them out of his time. And the team didn't pay for that. He did. But that's the kind of attention to detail that these guys get into. I was watching the program on Showtime with uh, Matt Barnes and uh, Stephen Jackson Smoke. And they had Tracy McGrady on there. And he was talking about Kobe and AAU, you know, when they were playing together, how Kobe 16, he was watching a lot of film. He said, oh, come on, let's go ahead. No, I'm going to go watch breakdown film. So that's what people don't understand. There's a commitment to excellence and a willingness to learn as much as they can to get the the intelligence to get seek to understand how to continue to get better and in that mental spiritual emotional realm there's no limit to that physically you know at some point your body runs down but most most uh, athletes probably know more about the game at the end of their career than at the beginning but the body's not willing you know i heard Wayne Gretzky i heard he said that and i know other people have said that i know for myself that my body broke down a long time ago, but knowing what I know now and understanding things, you know, if I had that uh, that IQ when I was younger, it would have made a huge difference when I played. Thank you for sharing all that. So here you are coming in to work with the Bulls, to work with Michael Jordan. What was the, like it was, if it was Phil who brought you in, I'm curious about what Phil thought that mindfulness and your teachings would yes. do to help the team get better or help certain yeah. individuals? Like, how did he, what did that conversation kind of look like? Or how did yeah. he sort of perceive what you could first, do yeah. for the team? First of all, he, I was at that time, I was working at the UMass Medical Center and in the, the, in the Department of Preventive and Behavioral Medicine, and specifically for the stress reduction relaxation program is what we called it, or stress reduction clinic. And John Kabat-Zinn, who founded the clinic and Mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's what it is, MBSR is what they call it now. He used to do, well, he probably still does. He does a training at Omega Institute for clinicians where he teaches them uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. They just have like a workshop or whatever. Phil's wife at the time, June, was actually participating in that. And at the same time, Phil was teaching what he did at Omega in those days a program called Beyond Basketball. So it was really like a weekend, you know, fantasy camp, something like that. But he did it to raise money for Eddie Mass, who was a um, teammate of Phil's that passed away, had died of a heart attack. So he was helping raise money for the family. So that's what he did. And so in their conversations, Phil, this was 1993, Phil wanted somebody to come in and help the team deal with the stress of success. So they had already won three championships. So he wanted me to come in and help them deal with the stress of success because he, Phil deals with the whole person. He didn't deal with the athlete, the whole person. And he wanted to help them with that because after winning three in a row, which no one had done that, you had to go back to 68, 67 when the Celtics won eight in a row. No one's won three in a row in basketball anyway. So he wanted me to come in and in the interim. So we talked that spring and then that summer, Michael Jordan's father got murdered and Michael, you know, retired from basketball. So when I got the training camp in October of 93, they were in full blown crisis. Yeah. And, and so, and then that's, that's, that's how our relationship started. And that was the beginning of it just to go in and work with them and, and help them 
course, <laughs> being a stress expert, if you want to call it that, or <laughs> stress reduction expert, not necessarily a stress expert, although I've been called that because sometimes <laughs> you get, you know, stressful dealing with stress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I just, it just gets levels up, leveled up when you have to really embrace it. So I went, when I got there, so it was an opportunity to see what the guys were willing to do, and we got busy. I have a, a few kind of key points. I recognize we don't have a whole lot of time. I want to be respectful of your time, but there's a couple of things I want to pick out here and see if if you want to kind of dive into these. Um, for people that aren't familiar as familiar with mindfulness, there might be kind of a question that comes up for them. Like, how can mindfulness really support elite performance? Like, how does practicing does this training actually support my ability to perform under pressure and these sorts of things? And I think there's a, a few points that I bring out of your book that I just kind of mm-hmm. highlighted as ideas. One is, I think the train, some of the trainings that you offer make the state of flow or being in the zone more accessible, Yes, maybe more readily. So that's kind of right. one, one piece. The other piece that stood out to me about the book, I mean, there's so many things in the book. And if people want to dive in, I highly encourage them. It's an awesome book to check it out. That I was struck by, though, as you were writing was, and I think this was in relation to your work with Kobe, but I'm not 100% sure, so you can correct that if it's wrong. But you talk about uh, the best way to score is yes. to like yes. is to try not to <laughs> score or something like that. So there's this idea of maybe mindfulness uh, used as uh, not only to be more in the zone, in flow, but also this maybe uh, relaxed sort of effort. Um, yes. Maybe we could dive into a little bit of that and yeah. like how how does that actually happen? Like what yes. does that actually look like? So, so the anatomy of flow, flow can happen in a couple of ways, but mainly, and this is what Csikszentmihalyi talked about, he just passed away recently. And he talks about you have to have, if you, if you can picture a, a graph, right? You have the you know, horizontal and vertical axes. Vertical is, is challenges and horizontal is, is skills, knowledge, and experience. And so when your skills are high and your challenges are high, that's when you have uh, the, the possibility of being in flow. But if you try to get into flow or the zone, you won't get there. It happens as a byproduct and mindfulness helps you. And this process I talk about, the five superpowers, helps you to become flow ready. And so you train and then after you train, then you sh- when you show up, then you got to let this is where that awareness you got to let the thing speak to you or let the game come to you. And you just go with what what's what's there. It's like improv. So if I offer you something and we're doing improv improvisation, if you don't accept it, it won't work. So even though you might not like it, you, you accept it, you whirl with it. And then and then that's how you you get going. So so you have to be clear about, you know, what you're doing it has to be important, it has to be relevant. And it has to be a complex activity or activity where you can get feedback in real time. Mm-hmm. So you're actually making an adaptation. So if you can get a feedback loop that's shorter and then you keep making the corrections and then at some point you just get into a rhythm or, or flow. And so and then what happens is you have the flow experience and then to get it again, you got to raise your, you gotta go to the next level. It's like a step function. And Herbert Benson talks about the breakout principle and he talks about flow happening. Think about somebody's doing research or thinking or, or mathematical problem or whatever. And so you you just put all your your energy, you give it your best shot. And then at some point you let it go. You surrender. And you might go for a walk or something. And while you're walking, 
eureka or aha the the experience goes to you and then you get in a flow so he talks about the struggle the surrender or the letting go uh the being in the zone or flow experience and then a new normal and so i i had this experience when i was my last year working in corporate america and i was working for this company and they they had actually it was digital and they they gave me a computer in those days people didn't have this is 1989 87 people didn't have personal computers but we had all of us had computers and we had like a network we were connected mm-hmm. to and everything so they had my computer on my desk and i was waiting for a tech to come and put it together and i decided i didn't want to wait for him so i put it together myself <laughs> and and so i was challenged out of my comfort zone and putting it together and and of course I used to walk at lunchtime I just got into this flow I got into the zone I got into this this flow state and so I was challenged and yet I had skills knowledge experience but I had the courage it's really important the courage to say okay I'm going to accept this challenge I'm going to accept it and and I got into a to a flow state and so this idea of working hard then then letting it go letting it be then when you're not thinking about the answer comes, it's like when you lose something, I lose something and I'm looking for it. I can't find it. Once I stop looking for it, I find it. Yeah. So yeah. this is the same thing with Kobe. The best way to score is not try to score. Because when you try to score and you say, I got to score 32 points and I'm going to score eight points a quarter, then now you're, you're forcing it and you're looking to score instead of allowing things to unfold. So you end up with way more opportunities because you're not and then you're uptight and then you're forcing things and you're you're hyper focused on things instead of seeing the opportunities that can arise from just doing a training and then allowing the training to express itself so you train you do things and then you just show up and you see what happens and that's it but that's the teaching is and then i'll give you another example i've been trying to write a book for 20 years and then when i stopped trying to write a book it wrote itself <laughs> So I have the experience of 20 years. I've been studying stuff 20 years. I struggle trying to write a book. And so that's, that's the teaching. Does that make sense? And so you, you, you let go. And and, in this breakout principle that uh, Herbert Benson, I think that's the name of the book talks about is just this struggle. But then when you let it go and you see a lot of people, even when, when you talk about Zen and some of the other spiritual stories, the guy gets enlightened when he's not, when he's out in the field and all of a sudden, you know, it hits him, you know, or hits her with the answer solution to the puzzle or the koan or just really just coming together at some point. And so that's the thing is we, we, you can struggle. Then when you take a step back from it and you stop trying to do what you're doing, that's when you, the answer just pops out. That's when you misplace something. And then once you stop, then that's when it comes to you where it is. I love that. George, thank you so much for sharing that. I think there's one piece that I'm wondering if this rings true in your experience and your teachings. Everything you just said about, so knowledge, skills, and abilities on the horizontal axis, challenge on the vertical axis. As we develop our skills, knowledge, abilities, and as the challenge increases, flow becomes more available, right? As we're sort of moving along. Yeah, but, you have to, but this is where the, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, because I would say when you look at that, uh, the two opposites are 
two opposite ends are anxiety. You have high challenges and low, no skills, knowledge and experience. I would put experience mm-hmm. in there. So you have anxiety. But let's say you have a lot of skills, knowledge, experience and low challenges, boredom. Right. So we right. spend most of our time between anxiety and boredom. Right. But when you get an anxiety, you know, from anxiety, you go through anxiety or high state of arousal to anxiety, and then you get the flow. So you have to go through, you have to have a high state of arousal. That's when we're peaked is when we're in a high state of arousal. But what you do is you continue. Remember I talked about a little while ago about when you change a habit pattern, mm-hmm. anxieties are mobilized. Yep. So it's by saying yes to the, the anxiety and moving to them because it's a lesson that you just move through, you continue to sustain effort and be persistent. Then you get to the other side of that. Yeah. And then, and then it gets to be effortless effort. If you understand effort creates synergy. So it's mm-hmm. this idea of understanding that, yeah, you're going to be in a high state of arousal. You're going to also be in anxiety. But when you get there, most people know, okay, I'm really close to flow. I just have to sustain it and have that relaxed receptivity and that relaxed concentration. Yeah, I love that. And and the final piece of this, I think that I'll just kind of close the loop on is sometimes what can pull us out of flow is distraction. So thinking about the future, thinking about the past, which I think mindfulness training, the ability to yeah. have sustained concentration on the present moment right. actually enables or supports flow because I can stay just more right here right now with what's happening in the moment, as opposed to being maybe taken out of the zone by thinking about what's coming up later or what happened before or whatever it is. Is that right? Yeah. Well, there's, there's the game that Michael was playing against uh, Portland Trailblazers when he's hitting all those threes. And once he just raised his hand and said, I don't know why I'm doing it. He couldn't hit another three. It's, it's self-conscious. When you're in flow, your self-consciousness is gone. You're not there. Right. Right. But once you start thinking about yourself or you start thinking about how you're doing or whatever, you can't break it. You got to just stay locked in and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. That's the challenge. Yeah. So, George, we're almost at time. You've offered so much here today, and I really appreciate your time. It's been a, a privilege and an honor to sit with you, have this conversation. As we close... I'm thinking about the broader environment and context that we're in right now. Yeah. The global pandemic. There's a yeah. lot of suffering. People are dealing with a lot. Is there anything that you would offer that you haven't today so far? If someone's out there and they're saying, I want to live a more open-hearted or I want to live a more courageous or compassionate life. Is there any kind of final piece or closing thought that you would throw out there? I would say I have a YouTube channel and every week I do what we call being at home with George during COVID. And I began each segment with this idea of creating the possibility that we can embrace whatever comes up, the good, bad, the ugly, anything that comes up, we say yes to it. And at the same time, we generate hope. So you look at, okay, what's what's the lesson here? How do I look at this in a way that empowers me? Instead of being a victim, how can I how can I just see it as a not as a roadblock but a stepping stone so it it has to do with this idea of when i talk about faith is seeing the glass as half full half full half empty are this are both right but half empty puts you in survival mode fight flight freeze versus rest and digest or love so one is fear one is love and you get that by seeing the universe as friendly and lawful so then you have to align yourself with how things work. So if you jump off of a building or jump off of a, even a chair, 
you're not going up, you're going down. That's gravity. You don't have to believe in gravity, but it works. And it's it's going to be there. So you can have that experience. Oh, now you know how gravity works and you can use it to your advantage. You're not a victim of it. You can you can use it to your advantage, but you have to understand, seek under understand how things work and then align yourself with how things work. It's that simple and that complicated. So it's like whatever comes up, embrace it, say yes to it. Don't resist it. Say yes to it. And how how can I, what's the lesson here? Once again, it's the four A's. What's the compassionate action? Once I'm aware of it, I accept it. There's a compassionate action. And then that's where your growth comes. But the challenge is in the acceptance piece. But once you accept it, then the, the wisdom or the universe will collude with you to help you get to a solution. Beautiful. Thank you so much, George. If people want to find out more about you, your work, what you're doing, yeah, follow they go you. to my website, georgemonfit.com. And uh, yeah, and there's a lot of opportunities. I, I, I believe we're still offering a PDF of a chapter of my book if they go on and give the email. And it, there's tons of things that, that are out there on YouTube if they just check me out on, I have a YouTube channel. But if they Google me, there's so much stuff out there. I've been around for a while. But the main thing, if they go to my website, you know, I also have a, you know, a masterclass on working with anxiety. Um, but I also have an online mind, the mindful athlete course, and and there's there's other things. But uh, you can get, the, I think, the PDF of a chapter of my book. I think if you go to the website or something like that, there'll be some freebie. That's great, George. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been an honor to be great. with you. Thank you, Joshua. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Courageous Life. I'd like to extend special thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Matt Donner, for all of the incredible behind-the-scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and the conversation, please do share with friends, because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button, or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.